Hello everyone and welcome to another Neverland case file. We are back with another file about a serial killer. After the last coat episode, I just had to step away from them for a bit. We will be talking about Edmund Kemper. So let's get into this file of the co-ed killer. Ooh, this is going to be so exciting. I've wanted to cover him for such a long time. Remember to like on any platform that you are listening and give a five-star review if you enjoy the podcast. And you can follow me on my social medias to see my everyday life and what's going on. Um, on Instagram at Neverland underscore serial killer. And also, I just want to let you guys know that if you follow that Instagram, there's a good chance you'll be able to see my kitty cats, which you'll probably hear a lot throughout this episode since I'm recording this in my car. So, let's get straight into it. A quick disclaimer for this episode will contain talks about murder, dismemberment, cruelty to animals, and more. Listener discretion is advised. Edmund Kemper, at age 15, killed both his grandparents to see what it felt like. Upon release, he drifted picking up and releasing female hitchhikers, but he soon stopped letting them go, killing six young women in the Santa Cruz, California area in the 1970s. In 1973, he killed his mother and her friend before turning himself in. Wow. Let's get straight into his early life and then into the killings because you know that on this channel we like to cover everything and not leave a single thing out. Let's go. Kemper was born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, the middle child. After his parents divorced in 1957, he moved with his mother and two sisters to Montana. Kemper had a different relationship with his alcoholic mother, as she was very critical of him, and she was blamed for all of his problems. When he was 10 years old, she forced him to live in the basement, away from his sisters, whom she feared he might harm in some way. Now, I'm not one to normally say this. I'm a firm believer in villains are made, not born. But he was definitely born a serial killer, and no one paid attention to the signs to help him before it went too far. Signs of trouble began to emerge early. Kimber had a dark fantasy life, sometimes dreaming about killing his mother. He cut off the heads of his sister's dolls and even convinced the girls into playing a game he called Gas Chamber in which he had them blindfold him and lead him to a chair where he pretended to writhe in agony until he died. This first victims were cats, a family of cats even. At 10, he buried one of them alive and the second, 13-year-old Kemper, slaughtered with a knife. 
a very early sign of a serial killer is when we start seeing the killing of animals and the torture of animals. That's usually the first signs that a serial killer has been born or created and then it should be up to the parents to look for that sign and be able to get them the help that they need so that they don't become a serial killer and then they're able to work through whatever problems or things that is going wrong in their life. He went to live with his father for a time, but ended up back at with his mother. She decided to send him, the now troubled teenager to live with his grandparents in North Fork, California. Kemper hated living on his grandparents' farm. He had already begun learning about firearms, but his grandparents took away his rifle after he killed several birds and other small animals. On August 27, 1964, Kemper finally turned his rage on his grandparents. The 15-year-old shot his grandmother in the kitchen after an argument, and when his grandfather returned home, Kemper went outside and shot him by the car and hid the body. Afterwards, he called his mother, who told him to call the police, and tell them what happened. Later, Kemper would say that he had shot his grandmother to see what it felt like. He added that he had killed his grandfather so that he wouldn't find out that his wife had been murdered. For his crimes, Kemper was handed over to the California Youth Attorney. He underwent a variety of tests which determined that he had a very high IQ, but also suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And I'll get into more of what paranoid schizophrenia means for anybody that might quite not know. Now, just in case anyone didn't know, paranoid schizophrenia was once a subtype of this condition because paranoia commonly happens with schizophrenia. Paranoia is a pattern of behavior where a person feels distrustful and suspicious of other people and acts accordingly. Delusions and hallucinations are the two symptoms that can involve paranoia. Kemper was eventually sent to a state hospital, a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. In 1969, Kemper was released at the age of 21. Despite his prison doctor's recommendation that he does not live with his mother because of her past abuse and his psychological issues involving her, he rejoined her in Santa Cruz, California, where she had moved. Where she had moved, ending her third marriage to take a job with the University of California. While there, Kemper attended community college for a time and worked a variety of jobs eventually finding deployment with the Department of Transportation in 1971. Kemper had applied to become a state trooper, but he was rejected because of his size. He weighed around 300 pounds and 6 feet 9 inches tall, which led to his nickname, Big Ed. However, he did hang around some of the Santa Cruz police officers, one gave him a training school badge and handcuffs, while the other let him borrow a gun. Kemper even had a car that resembled a police cruiser, which would come in handy for what he was going to do as a serial killer. A lot of the time, serial killers will pose themselves as police officers so that 
people will trust them almost automatically. Kemper began working for the highway department and shortly after was hit by a car while out on his motorcycle. His arm was badly injured and he received a $15,000 settlement in the civil suit he filed against the car's driver. Unable to work, Kemper turned his mind towards other pursuits. He noticed a large number of women hitchhiking in the area. In a new car he bought, Kemper began sorting the tools he thought he might need to fulfill his murderous desires, including a gun, a knife, and handcuffs. Which, remember, he got the gun and the handcuffs from his police buddies. At first, Kemper picked up female hitchhikers and let them go. However, when he offered a ride to two San Francisco students, they never make it to their destination. Their families reported them missing, but nothing would be known of their fates until August 15th, when a female head was discovered in the woods near Santa Cruz, and was later identified as one of the missing girls. The other girl was never found. Kemper would later explain that he stabbed and strangled one girl before stabbing the other as well. A torturous fate for both girls, and I can't even imagine having to be there and listen to your friend being murdered, knowing that your fate was next. Awful. After the murders, he brought the bodies back to his apartment and removed their heads and hands. Kemper also reportedly engaged in sexual activity with their corpses. That is insane and really disturbing and gross. I don't... This is the one thing that I don't understand about serial killers. Like, I can get the psychology around the keeping a trophy kind of stuff, but I just don't understand the having sex with corpses and body parts of the people that you killed. Later that year, on September 14th, 1972, Kemper picked up 15-year-old Akiko Ko, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that, who had decided to hitchhike rather than wait for the bus to take her to dance class. She would never make it there, and she'd meet the same fate as the others before her. Thank you for your opinion, Patroclus. In January 1973, Kemper continued to act on his murderous impulses, picking up hitchhiker Cindy Shell, whom he shot and killed. While his mother was out, Kemper went to her home and hid the girl's body in his room. He dismembered her corpse there, and the following day, he threw the parts into the ocean. Several parts were later discovered when they washed up on shore. He buried her head in his mother's backyard. So imagine that he killed this woman, took her to his mom's house, and then proceeded to go cut up her body in the room and then buried her head in his mother's backyard. That is insane logic to even think about. On February 5th, 1973, Kemper used a campus parking sticker his mother had given to him to, to do a double murder. 
He drove to the university where he offered a ride to two students, Rosa and Alice. Shortly after picking them up, he shot the two young women and then drove past the gates with two mortally woman mortally wounded women in his car. So he went to the university, picked up these two girls, shot and killed them, and then drove past the gates of the university, you know, with this little sticker on his car, and nobody noticed at all. After the murders, Kemper displayed his two victims and further dismembered their bodies, removing the bullets from their heads and disposing of their parts in different locations. In March, the remains were discovered by hitchhikers near the Highway 1 in San Monteo County. At the time of Kemper's murders, two other serial killers, John Laney Frazier, and Hubert Mullins were also perpetrating their own crimes in the area, resulting in Santa Cruz receiving the nickname the murder capital of the world. This happens a lot around these timelines is that serial killers will pop up all around the same area and do all these different murders. So often, even sometimes, the murders get mixed up and we don't know who committed what. Now, for the story, I know some of you true crimes fans are waiting for. In 1973, April, Kemper committed what would be his last two murders. On Good Friday, he went to his mother's home where the two had an unpleasant exchange. Kemper attacked his mother after she went to sleep, first striking her in the head with a hammer and then cutting her throat with a knife. As he had with his other victims, when he decapitated her and cut off her hands and then removed her larynx and put it down the garbage disposal. An extra level of gross in that. After hiding his mother's body part, Kemper called his mother's friends, Sally Hanlett, and invited her over to the house. Kemper strangled Sally shortly after she arrived and hid her body in a closet. Kemper fled the area the next day, driving east until he reached Pablo, Colorado, where on April 23rd, he made a call to the Santa Cruz police to confess his crimes. At first, they did not believe that the guy they knew as Big Ed was the killer. Remember, Kemper wanted to be a cop, so he hung out with the officers a lot over the years, and they knew him really well. So they would have never believed that this guy that they knew so well was going to be a serial killer. But during interrogations, he would lead them to all the evidence they needed to prove that he was, in fact, the infamous co-ed killer. Charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, Kimber went on trial for his crimes in October 1973. He was found guilty of all the charges in early November. When asked by the judge what he thought his punishment should be, Kimper said that he thought he should be tortured to death. Instead, he received eight coordinate life sentences. He is still alive today. Ed Kemper was a strange man with a killer mind and needed help from his early life. 
He was a born killer, but also remorseful of what he did. The same kind of behavior we saw from Jeffrey Dahmer. guys what did you think of this case i know my cat certainly had some opinions during recording be sure to subscribe and give a review of what you thought of the podcast remember you can contact me on social media and instagram at neverland underscore serial killer let me know if there's a case you would like me to talk about and i'll even give you a shout out in the podcast if you suggest some thank you all for listening have a killer day